Good morning, everybody. I trust your last week was was well, and and if it wasn't, a, a new week has begun today, and and you made a wise choice because what better place to be at to to start our weeks? So I got a few questions for you guys to start. How many of you, and you can show your hands, enjoyed school? Recess, okay, well, it's at school, it's, it's debatable. I've seen very few hands, and that's kind of uh, what I was expecting. So, so if I ask the question, how many of you didn't enjoy school, I would expect to see a few more hands. I've seen a few more, but, but not all yet, so maybe the fairest question to ask would be, how many of you have been out of school for so long, you don't remember whether you liked it or did not like it? There's a few. Yeah, that's the most hands I've seen there. So I kind of float into that area too, I think, where if it was something I was passionate about, like gym, I, I'd be into it. I'd be invested in it. But if it wasn't, then, you know, I was, I was watching the clock, and I hope too many people aren't doing that today because it's a bit of a, a longer lesson. So currently I find myself back in school. As a lot of you know, I'm taking some courses at uh, Great Lakes in Waterloo, Ontario there. And so the course that I'm taking this semester is Biblical Geography. And so that is really what this lesson is going to be about today. You see the title there, How God Speaks. We know that primarily God spoke, speaks to us through His Son. God used the prophets in the Old Testament. God uses stories to speak to us. We see often that, that Christ himself would use parables, illustrations that way to get his point across. But we also see that God speaks to us through nature. And right away, I think we think in Romans 1.20, where Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without an excuse. Nature is a great representative of God, is it not? It shows his divinity, his divine power. You look at the background in this picture here behind us. Quite an amazing scene. And that's only just a small part of the world, but God had a hand in putting all of that together. And so we see that, that through time, not only has God used men and women to convey his message, but, but he has used the planet that he created. And so this year, I said I was in school. This, actually, what you're going to be seeing today is a project that I had to put together. We had to, we've been studying mostly Israel. We've moved on to Egypt now. But our task was to take some geography of, of Israel, of the Holy Land there, and define it in a way that it helps us to understand God's Word. So how geography helps us understand God's Word. And I've really appreciated the course, not only now when, when I read the Bible, I can kind of picture in my mind where some of these places and, and towns and cities are, but it's just quite neat to see how much geography is actually in your Bible if you're looking for it. And so the text that we're going to be looking at today is only three verses. It is Psalm 133, and it states, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edges of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, 
life forever. And so this was the, the passage that I chose, and so I wanted to do some research on that. Now, Psalm 133, this is some background. Now, for this lesson here, there's going to be a bit of geography, so I do apologize if you're one of those school people. If you have to go to the washroom, just raise your hand and I will excuse you. We're going to follow school rules. No, I'm just kidding. But there's going to be a little bit of geography. And, and when I did my presentation, I, I focused more heavily on that for the school part of it. Today, we're going to focus more on the, on the spiritual aspect of what's being said here. But there will be a little bit of, of geography because it does go together to, to help us understand. And so Psalm 133 is one of 15 psalms that are called the Songs of Ascent, or, or the Pilgrim Psalms, or the Songs of Degree. And so they are Psalms 120 to 134, those 15. And so I was kind of curious of why they were termed the Songs of Ascent. Now, there's a few different thoughts as, as to why that is. The first one is that the temple in Jerusalem, where in Deuteronomy we see that men were required to come to three times a year. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast for Tabernacles. Men were required to go to a place that God chose to worship Him. And so that place ended up being Jerusalem and at the temple there. Now, the temple has 15 steps. So it's thought of that when men would get there, they would arrive in Jerusalem, they would get to the temple, and they would chant one of these psalms each time they went up a step. 15 psalms, 15 steps. So that is one of the thoughts, and they may, have done, they may have done that either way. However, there's also another reason that, that they're probably defined as ascent, and that has a lot more to do with geography. You see in this picture here, I hope it's big enough for you guys, yeah, it doesn't look too bad. This is from one of the atlases that I've used to study um, in this course, and it's showing us there the five major longitudinal zones of Israel. We see the Mediterranean Sea, that big blue part there, and we see the coastal plain as we make our way in. Then we see the central mountain range, and that is where Jerusalem is located. Continuing east, we see the Rift Valley, which is home to the Dead Sea. Moving east more, the Transjordan Mountains, and then after that, the Eastern Desert. And so I think we can all kind of understand the lay of the land by, by just our, our general knowledge here. This picture is not great at showing elevation or topography of the land, but we know what plains are, right? We are on plains right now. We don't look outside at, at an, a nice big mountain or hill, and we don't look down a valley. Or I mean, we can go a little bit south and get to the Pemina Valley, I guess, but you get the idea. So we know that, that that's pretty level ground. We understand that when we hear, hear the word mountain, we think up. We're not descending a mountain unless we're on the top of it. After that, we think of a valley. We know a valley is generally going down, and then we see the mountains again, and, and then the desert. So we can kind of get a lay of the land that way. This picture I just appreciated because of the shading that the artist has put into it. This is, is more northern Israel. We see Mount Hermon in there that we're going to be talking about yet, but I think the artist did a great job in this picture of, of the shading to kind of help us appreciate a little bit more the ups and downs of the land. Remember, we're talking about the songs of ascent here. And so we can see Jerusalem kind of sitting in the middle there. I know it's very mappy and stuff like that, but there's going to be a lot of slides here today, and I'm going to go through some quickly, so if nothing else, you're going to see a lot of things flash up on the screen here. But we see the elevation of Jerusalem there, over 2,500 feet above sea level. 
And so whichever route you were coming from, remember people are coming from all over the place here. People are coming from Africa. They're coming from Egypt. They're coming from Anatolia in the north. They're coming from everywhere. And so you see Jerusalem is the spot that they want to go. And so wherever you're coming from, you are inclining. It's interesting. If I were to say that I was going to the United States this weekend, what would I be more likely to say? Would I say, I'm going down to the States this weekend? Or I'm going up to the States this weekend? Down. Down would be the answer. Some folks might say up, but we kind of look at them a little funny, right? If I'm going to Churchill, I'm not say, I'm saying I'm going down to Churchill this weekend. I'm saying I'm going up. I'm going up to Elm Creek. I'm going down to Winkler. Because nowadays we talk with north and south. The Bible a little different. And it was one of the things that, that I think I, I caught on when we were studying with Dale and Kathy one day. That it was interesting that the Bible talks in elevations. So it's very rare for someone to probably see, you see Jericho there kind of in the middle, in the valley there. It's probably pretty rare for someone to say, and they went up to Jericho. Unless you're coming from the Dead Sea. Because Jericho, lowest city in the world. 800 feet below sea level. And so we would see in this situation that when people are coming to Jerusalem, they are making their way up. Now let me go a little further. This is just another picture of, of what we just kind of looked at there, maybe a little more defined. And so we can really see, if you're coming from the east or the west, you're going to be making your way with an incline to Jerusalem. Now this picture may show it a little better. It's kind of showing the same thing, but again, if we look on especially the bottom half of it, the east to west portion on that, you see that we've got to come up. Now there's more to it than that. This picture here shows the major trade routes, the major passages in that time. If you're looking kind of, you see the Mediterranean Sea, you can see one there that says the Via Maris. Whether that's the, the best term to use, it's also known as the Way of the Philistines. They're a little bit up in the air as to whether that includes the, the entire route or just a part of it. But it might be best known as the International uh, Trunk Road. And so it was a popular passage that people would take. So likely, when people are making their way to Jerusalem to worship, they are coming up this coastal line here. The same on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. The eastern side of the Jordan, you see the King's Highway. People would have been coming up that way as well. And so I think we can appreciate just seeing where Jerusalem is in the middle, that whether people are coming up the coastline to the west, or they're coming through uh, the Transjordan Mountains or the Rift Valley on the east, that at some point they will have to turn either east or west to come to Jerusalem. And that's when this picture really makes a difference, especially on the bottom. So you're coming up the coast, you've got to turn in and head up to Jerusalem. You're coming from the other side, you might be up on the mountain, but you're going to have to go down and up back again. Are you with me so far? Everybody awake? All the eyes are open still. We've got a long ways to go. So, these are just some of the routes that people would have took. There's another one that comes right up the gut. That one is the Ridge Route, the Route of the Patriarchs. So people would have been coming that way as well. But there still would have been inclined to it. So this is how God has, has kind of helped us understand, maybe, why, why they were called the Psalms of Ascent. These people were, were coming to gather, remember, with fellow believers. Now, we'll take a break from the geography for a little bit. So what is, what is God saying to us in Psalm 133? It's a psalm written by, by David. I believe he wrote four of the songs of ascent. Solomon wrote the other, and the rest are, are unknown. But what is God saying to us about unity? 
Remember the text here. We'll look at the first part of it. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers, the NIV says God's people instead of brothers, to dwell together in unity. How good and pleasant that is. First, we'll break down unity. Simply, it is the quality or the state of not being multiple. So, we get oneness. All right. There's a good unified picture there. Locked in, supportive. So, is being united important? Is there value in that? What else does Scripture have to say about it? Perhaps there's no better words than, than what, we, what Corey read for us already. The words of Christ when, when he's making his prayer, his, just before he was, was crucified, he asks when talking to God and praying, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. So what is Christ, what is Christ asking for here? He demonstrates that, that him and God are one. I, I don't think we've ever doubted that. Do we ever really see God the Father saying one thing here and, and Jesus saying another thing that, that doesn't match? No. These, these guys are on the same page. The message is a united one. We are going to hear the same thing from both sides. And Jesus, he's wanting that for his followers as well. He's wanting that for the disciples that, that are going to be left here on earth. Notice he says he's not taking them out of the world. He knows that, that it is important in their task that they, that they stay in the world to help spread the gospel and, and to get the church off the ground, the birth of that. See, the relationship between, between Jesus and God is one built on love and obedience. And, and love, as we'll come to see, is, is really the glue that makes unity work. That effort of love is something that will ensure unity. And so God, God wants that of us. It's, we see the word that unity is oneness. How often in the Bible do we see one body, one Lord? And we'll look at, at that yet. But there's one church. And I think that can maybe be something that's confusing to, to non-believers when, look at Carmen, for example. They'll say, well, there's, there's five or six different churches in Carmen. There's 40 different churches in, in Winkler, right? And and that's a tough one uh, to, to explain to people why there's so many differences. Um, it's, it's probable and likely that, that we will never all come to agree on the organization of worship or, or different procedures that, that we should do each Sunday. I mean, over time, man has, has interpreted the Bible and taken it and, and wrongly sometimes added other things to it that, that don't need to be there. But you, could, you can debate, debate with all of them as to that. But surely Christ did not, did not mean for there to be that many different branches off of the church. Otherwise the Bible would be very, very long if, if he talked to each individual. Okay, well for the Mennonite church they'll do this and, and the church of Christ this way and the Lutheran and the, yeah, all different kinds, you know. But that is not what, what Christ wanted here. Christ wanted that 
for him to be the uniting factor in, in all of us. And, and I think sometimes we, we can be guilty of, of maybe saying, you know, if it's, if it's not the Church of Christ, then, then it's, it's wrong completely, right? And, and other places can do the same, same to us. They can say, ooh, I attended the Church of Christ service the other day, and those folks got some strange ideas. But the thing is, we should be united by the essentialness that is Jesus Christ, that we are all trying to, to serve him, that as long as we are believing that it is Christ Jesus who is the one, the propitiation for our sins, and, and that, we are, that we are in him, that these are still our brothers and sisters. Now, I don't want to go into too, too much of that. That's something that can be gone into uh, on its own and take up a lot of time, and I'm already going to take up enough time of yours as it is. But we are united as a big family through Christ. We are adopted as sons and, sons and daughters of, of God. God's not, when we get up to heaven, God is not going to have a, a section penned off for the Church of Christ Christians, the Mennonite Christians. No, we are meant to all be together. We are all meant to be on the same page. And that's why I mentioned that there, there will always be some of those differences that we'll never completely agree on. But I think we sometimes can limit the sheer size of, of our family in Christ by completely closing the door on, on those that are, that are not of the same exact rules as we are. Because God wants us to be united. And I think it was, it was Edward who said when he came here, that, that, and he knew nobody, I don't think, not very well, but he said in this building he was with family because he was with brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think we have a lot bigger group in the world than, than sometimes we remember. Paul says in Ephesians 4, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How essential was the Spirit to getting the church off the ground? crucial, was it not? The work that the Spirit did in, in bringing everyone together. We think, think of the Jew and the Gentile at that time. Forget about not being on the same page. These guys were in different books. They weren't overly fond of each other. The, the Jews definitely thought the Gentiles were, were unclean and, and, and not, like, you know, they were on different planets um, as far as, as worship-wise. But with, with Christ and, and the sacrifice that he made for everyone, it looped everyone together. It made one door for everyone to come through now. And so that is the Spirit's work, and, and we want to be, to be diligent in that. We want to be spude in that. <laughs> I always got to mention that one. I like that word. That is diligence. We want to be working together to assure that the work of the Spirit continues on. It says that we're showing tolerance for one another in love. And like I said before, love is really what is in the background to unity. If there's love there, unity can grow. Unity can thrive. Unity is a blessing from God. And it is God's plan for us. It is something to be cherished, to be preserved, and to be protected. You know, it's not a nature thing, but, but when you see, see a church come together, the, when you see people in harmony, at peace with one another... That is a great showing of God's love as well. People see that, how you interact with, how it is one big family, and they say, wow, like, that's something I would like. That's something that's nice. 
And that causes them to ask further questions as to what is the reason for that. So what is our responsibility with unity? Is, is it up to everyone or, or just a few of us? Well, in, in Romans 12, 18, Paul says this. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That sounds like there's a responsibility on, on all of us to make the effort to be peaceable. Now, it might not always work. We, we've all wronged people in the past. And so when we realize that we've done that, we ask for forgiveness. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that person will forgive us. But at least we have done, done our part in that. And so we should all be making the effort to be in harmony with each other. So we, we've covered that, that unity is important. It's, it's a blessing from God. It's something that, uh, that is expected of us, that, that, is, that is nice and good for us. But what does unity look like? If we're still in Romans 12, you just back up a little bit. We see that it says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And brotherly love is, is probably the, the form of love that we're most talking about in, in Psalm 133 here. Give preference to one another in honor. I, I've read on that verse that give preference to one another in honor. It says, Outdo one another in honor. You know, be striving to honor each other more. Not lagging behind in diligence. No, we see that we are to be diligent in the previous passage. Fervent in spirit. You know, that is, that is intense, passionate in our spirit, in, in our lives, in our serving of the Lord, in our rejoicing of hope, in our persevering through tribulation, which comes. That is, in tribulation, that is probably the greatest time when it's, when it's nice to lean on your family, is it not? When, when it's hard for you, when the load feels too heavy, it's when you fall back and you expect your brothers and sisters there to catch you. To be devoted in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints. The saints are the holy people. The saints are God's people, those who are in Christ Jesus and practicing hospitality. These are great traits. These are traits, again, that grow unity. This is what unity looks like. You guys thought I was going to get away from Colossians and give you a break because I've been on that for the last little while, but I found a way to sneak it in. Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This passage is, is packed with a lot of things we've, we've gone over already. The idea of, of one body, and that Christ is, is, is the focal point of that. But the thing I want to really look at there is beyond all these things, and all these traits that we read above that and the ones we just read in Romans 12, those are great traits, traits that the Christian should be practicing, should want to practice. But it says beyond all these things, put on love. And love is, again, behind these things. If I'm going to be compassionate and kind to someone, I'm doing it out of love. If I'm going to show gentleness and patience, I'm doing it out of love. I should be doing it out of love. But it says that love is the perfect bond of unity. So let's think on unity and love for a little bit. 
and the kinds of love that we come across in the Bible. The first one, Eros. We see Cupid there. This is the romantic kind of love, a sexual love between a man and a woman, a married man and woman, a gift that God has given. So we think of unity and, and man and woman becoming one. That, that, is, that is unity there. Storg, storge, probably pronouncing it wrong, storge. That is a familial love, almost sounds Italian. It's a love between family members, love between a mother and daughter, I would guess, by that picture. This we could also apply to unity. Are we not thinking that the church is described as a family, as brothers and sisters? The city of Philadelphia, you've heard of brotherly love, city of brotherly love, phileo love, brotherly love. In this picture, we see what is supposed to be King David and Jonathan. Now, it says that in 1 Samuel that they were united as friends and that Jonathan thought just as highly of David as he did himself. We, we may have, have very high opinions of, of a few people, but how... I, I would... I would I, it's not... Uh, I'd say it's a great struggle to think of everyone of as high as, or as high as yourself, is it not? Do we fall short in that somehow? By Jonathan displaying that, that love to David, that this is brotherly love. There were two friends that became united that way, and they were, they were not to be the likeliest friends, were they? I mean, Jonathan's dad was trying to kill David. Do you think that would maybe drive a bit of a rift between, between a friendship there? Of course, the highest form of love is the love of God for mankind, agape love. A love that, that if we could all show to each other, I guess we would call that heaven if we were all in that point. And so we'll get there, but definitely something we should be striving for. So these are the different kinds of love that, that we're seeing in the Bible that provide the backbone for unity. Now, there are some dangers to unity. There are some things out there that cause it to unravel, to untie. If you had the word unite and the word untie, all you're doing is moving the eye. It's kind of a neat trick. And it gives you two different sides of the coin. In Proverbs 6, we see this. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans and feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. One who causes discord among the family. Now it's kind of interesting. At the, you see at the beginning there, it's kind of confusing really. It says there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And so I, in my research as I understand that it is and it is used elsewhere in scripture, but the six things that he lists, those, the result of that is, is the seventh. And I guess either way you take it, it makes sense. So haughty eyes, you know, pride, proud, proudness, a lying tongue, hands that, that do evil things, that shed innocent blood and, and make wicked plans, feet that are, that are quick to point themselves in the direction of evil. And again, a false witness, lies. We see that one twice. All these things, these things are what forms a crack in unity. 
and sometimes can destroy it. But just as we see that, that these are seven bad things, and I don't want to leave it up there too long, we see that, that God has given us seven things that we are to grasp onto to remain firmly united. Seven ones to be united in. And we've already looked at the first three verses uh, of this chapter in Ephesians, and so we'll continue on. Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. Sorry, just as also as you were called in one hope of your calling. I had it right. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, just that last verse there could make up a sermon on its own. Over all and through all and in all. But these are the things that we are to be united in, to be tied down. This is, this is the, the common features that we latch on to. So, why aim for unity? Well, being united, there's, there's great value in it, first of all. Before we, before we back up what, what God thinks of unity, being united can, can be a huge blessing. There's great value in, in being part of a team. When I think of the word unity, I, I, I think of a team. So, a little story, there's, there's a kid who comes home and, and he's kind of roughed up a little bit. You know, his nose is leaking a little bit. He's got a bruise under his eye and, and he comes home and his parents see him and say, Whew, Timmy, what happened to you? And he says, ah, I got in a fight. And his parents are kind of freaked out and like, oh my goodness, that's not good. Like, like Timmy, like, what happened? And he says, oh, it was tough, I tell you. It was six on one. The toughest one we ever fought. You know, he was part of the six. He was part of the team. I mean, the result is that he not get beat up. But usually when you hear that, you know, they're the one and not the... I don't have to explain it to you guys. But there's great value in being part of a team. So, for God... He says this, he says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Things that are good and pleasant, God says. What kind of things do we think are good and pleasant? For me, it's good and pleasant if I order a 10-piece chicken nugget meal and there's 11 nuggets in there. There was a big story in the States this last week of a guy who worked for two years at McDonald's somewhere down there, and he said for every 10-piece he made, he put in 11. And he was called like the hero we don't deserve and all those things and stuff like that. That is good and pleasant to me. God's standard is much higher than that. And his standard is the one that, that we need to be concerned with. And so it says it is good and pleasant. And, and so we will jump back now into the geography. Now, I'm going to jump back once more and read verse 2. One thing that is good and pleasant to God is described this way. It says, It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. What was this holy anointing oil used for in the Old Testament? It's interesting, actually, yesterday uh, we were at Michael and Cassandra's for, for Bible study, and we talked a little bit, actually, about, about oil, how it was used, and... And, and how it has those, those healing effects of it as well. But, but what was God's plan for oil in the Old Testament? Well, in worship there, this oil was to be, was to be used to, to consecrate, to clean 
the utensils that were going to be used in worship, the lampstand, uh, the ark, all these different things. This oil was supposed to be put on there to, to ready it, to make it worthy to be used in worship to God. In this text here, we see that it was poured upon Aaron. So it was poured upon the priests, those who were about to go in and serve. They had this oil poured on them so that, that they were cleansed. They were ready to be used in service to God. And, and the Old Testament gives us quite a list and, and, and an exact list. You can see in Exodus and in other places of, of how things were to be set up. God had these rules that, that were to be followed, to be pleasing to him, to be done the way that he wanted. He expected it done that way. But he gives us an example on, on how the oil was made. He says that there was, well, you know what? I'm just going to read it, actually. In Exodus uh, 30, verse 22, title is The Anointing Oil. And these are the slides that I went into a little more geographical depth with uh, for my class about like where these trees and these plants were and everything, like all that fun stuff. You guys don't probably need or want to hear that, but we'll go through it a little more quickly here. Um, just read a few verses in Exodus 30. It says, Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take also for yourself the finest of spices, of flowing myrrh, five hundred shekels, and of fragment cinnamon, half as much, two hundred and fifty of fragment cane, two hundred and fifty of cassia, and of cassia five hundred, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and of the olive oil, a hin. You shall make of these a holy anointing oil, a perfume mixture, the work of a perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it, you shall anoint the tent of meaning, meeting and the ark of the testimony, and the table and all its utensils, and the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the laver, laver and, its and its stand, you shall also consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them shall be holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may minister as priests to me. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. This oil was important to God, and he was choosing the finest of spices. So here we see this kamifora mirha, and so... On the one side, you can kind of see the resin that was coming out. That is what they wanted to get for this oil. Next, we see another big word, <laughs> xylanicum. And I apologize for those who are, who are listening online. You're missing out on the visual aids that, that this project really needed necessary. But, but it's okay. We see that this is the bark uh, that was used for that oil. And supposedly, it was three-year-old branches of the tree that were the best to use. How they found that out? I mean, trial and error, I guess. So I'm just going to continue on. These are the things that I just read about that are, that are to be gathered together in different amounts to be used to make this holy oil. Lastly, we had the olive tree. It was supposed to be one hen, which is about four liters. And so the olive tree is a very interesting, uh, it has an interesting place in Scripture. The olive, of course, is one of the seven species that God gave for Israel to enjoy. But the olive tree, it grows, as, as you can kind of see in this picture, it grows in, in spots where you think it would be hard for things to grow. The olive tree can grow kind of on the side of a hill. It can grow with, with, with little soil. It likes the salty air, so it was supposed to grow kind of on the coast by the Mediterranean. And, and the Jews were supposed to kind of follow the example of the olive tree. 
Because the olive tree was able to bear fruit in, in, in tough situations. It was able to, to bear fruit in places where other plant life wouldn't. And so that is the, the, the call that, that translates to us as well, that we are to be lights in a dark world. So these are the things that, that were put together to form God's oil. Now, this is an old olive press uh, in Tel Hadzor that they re- reconfigured. And so you can just see the ingenuity of, of how they, they would take the olives and squish them down with that big rock and it would run out into the tray there. And then that's how, how they would use it. So um, another big thing for the oil, and remember, this is David writing about it. And, and we know that David... Right When he became king, he was anointed with oil. Whether it was the same holy anointing oil or not, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that. But oil was, was important. In the New Testament, to anoint someone with oil when they were a guest at your house was thought of as a nice thing and, and a good courtesy to someone. Because the oil was, was refreshing. It was cleansing. Now, think back to the very beginning, probably two hours ago when I started. We're thinking of the people going to Jerusalem. They're gathering with fellow believers. Think of how refreshing that is. Think of, I think of lectureship. You know, every time we meet, it should be refreshing to us. It should be. And it is. But I think we all think, when we think of a time of rejuvenation and and just anticipation and excitement, I think we think of lectureship. When we're all here and we can listen to a bunch of lessons and sing sing louder and and everything. But that's accomplishing the same task as the oil. So think of these different believers coming from from the north, from the south, when they would gather three times a year, how much of a blessing that was for them to get together and worship with their brethren, to to learn from each other, to lean on each other, and just to praise God as a family. I think that ties in very nicely to the, the idea of oil as refreshing, which is exactly what the oil was meant to represent, uh, that cleansingness as well, to prepare things for God. So the last verse that we have is Psalm 133, verse 3. And it says, It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing. Life forever. So this is another thing that is good and pleasing to God. Here we see Mount Zion in the background. We're looking across the Hula Valley to that. Um, I don't know how many of you guys have traveled over there. I know Dale and Kathy have. So they all have a good... Uh, visual in their minds, but these are just some pictures of, uh, of Mount Hermon. Uh, it's the biggest mountain, I believe, on the, to the east of the Mediterranean, and so that's probably why, why David wrote about why, why God used it here. Here are just some pictures to help us appreciate kind of where it is. I'll go quite quickly through here. On this picture, we can see Mount Hermon to the top there, and so it just gives us an idea of, of where it is. We kind of recognize the words Sea of Galilee, Samaria, Nazareth, we might not know all some of the other ones, um, but just a good idea of, of where Mount Hermon is in, in relation to Jerusalem, uh, which is quite a bit south. This is just a Google Maps picture. I especially like the picture on the right, where you can see that that red pin is dropped right on top of the mountain of Mount Hermon, and you're looking south, and it's almost like you're standing on the mountain, as you can see right in the forefront there, the Sea of Galilee, that body of water. And then if you look past it, you have the Dead Sea. So you're looking really a long ways. Of course, we're not standing on the mountain. We're quite a bit higher than that. But it's just uh, an amazing shot of, uh, of the, land, the Holy Land here, I think. 
Again, this is kind of looking the other way. This picture may not look like anything to you, really, but the Mount of Olives, that's right by Jerusalem, and you can see there's a, maybe a little rise. It's very faint on here, but a little rise to the north there. And so that's just kind of showing how big Mount Hermon is. Um, I think it's actually a six-hour car ride to get between the two places, but, but it's a long distance. Uh, Mount Hermon, some 9,000 feet above sea level, where Jerusalem, about 2,500, just for your appreciation. But Mount Hermon, let, let's get to why, that, why the dew on Hermon is a blessing of God. And, and so when we think of Mount Hermon, we think of the snow, and we've seen that in the pictures, but, but there is vegetation, there is life there. And it has, the dew has a lot to do with it. Yeah, pretty smooth. <laughs> so the vegetation on Mount Hermon, I'm just going to cruise through these pictures here. This is talking about the rainfall. If you are really curious about it, I can talk to you after. But the dew on Hermon. There was a gentleman named Henry Maudrell, and, and he wrote a book in the late 1700s, I believe, that was called A Journey from Aleppo to Jerusalem at Easter. And so in his findings, he wrote this. I don't have the direct quote, but he said this. He said, it was confirmed what the holy psalmist meant, that when spending a night on Mount Hermon, when we awoke, our tent was as wet and as damp with dew as if it had rained all night. So we all know what it looks like if it's been pouring all night. We hear the rain, and we go outside, and there's puddles, and, and things are soaked. That is what the, the heavy dew is like on Hermon. It's that strong. So you wouldn't have heard any rain pounding on the tent, but when you would have woke up, you would have seen the beads on there. A poem that uh, William Digby Seymour mentioned, and it kind of ties in. It's kind of the, the same verse that we're looking at, but he put it in a poem. It says, So the dew... The dews on Hermon's hill, which the summer clouds distill, floating southward in the night, pearly gems on Zion's light. And so, why is dew, how does that tie in with, with unity as a blessing? Well, if we look at dew throughout the, God's word, it shows it as a blessing. In Proverbs 19, it says, The king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. Isaiah 18.4 says, For thus the Lord has told me, I will look from my dwelling place quietly, like dazzling heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. I will be like the dew to Israel, and he will blossom like the lily, and he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. The dew, the dew helping the lily to grow here. It's essential. It's Hosea 14.5. In Micah, which we just studied on Wednesdays, it says, Then the remnant of Jacob will be among many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on vegetation, which do not wait for man or delay for the sons of man. How valuable are showers to vegetation? Wayne, can you answer that for me? Are showers to vegetation, they're essential, right? They're a blessing from God. And of course, if we turn to the very front of the Bible, in Genesis 2 and 5 and 6, it says, now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain upon the earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. The mist, to me, kind of sounds like, like dew that, that God was using to, to grow his plant life in the times before he sent rain. And so we see that is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. And now I always had a big question. What is Mount Zion? 
Is Mount Zion one mountain? Is it two mountains? Is Mount Zion Jerusalem? Is it the temple? Is Mount Zion the church? Yes is the answer, I guess, to that question. It's used to represent, to represent all those things. And so we might go a little quickly over this part because here's where the geography part really comes of it. Because Mount, you see on this picture there's two Mount Zions. There's Mount Zion and New Mount Zion. Now, we know that the original one was where David com- uh, conquered a Jebusite area and renamed it the City of David, where we see in the blue there. But over time, it got transferred over to a southwestern hill. There's a lot to it. Again, I can try and help you through it if, if you are indeed interested in it. But that's not really the point here. He, he's talking about that the dew is coming down upon the mountains of Zion. It was plural there. And so this blessing, like the dew on Hermon, it's coming down onto God's people, onto Zion. And so that is really how God is, is using nature to describe what he means. And, and he's, he's talking to people who, who understand it. He's not talking to us here in the middle of winter and saying, oh, you know, my love is like the burning heat in the desert. We would understand that, but we wouldn't necessarily be able to appreciate the same way as when we would say that Satan's hatred is as cold as the winter snow, right? Because we, we have that. We experience that. But these people are in this land. They know the attributes and how things are, are happening there. And so there's another great example of it. This is another verse that I thought I was maybe going to do my project on, but I, did, I, I decided on 133 instead. It's another Psalm of Ascent, and it says this, Those who trust in the Lord are as, the, are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. If Jerusalem was flat and there wasn't a hill in sight, we wouldn't understand what God meant by that, that the mountains surround Jerusalem and that he surrounds his people. I hope this this is not the best picture of it, but this shows Jerusalem and all the different mounts that are around it. We see Mount Olive. uh, There is a Mount Zion on there, Arca. There's a bunch of different ones there, Mount Moriah. And so there are these these five to seven hills that, that do surround Jerusalem. So the people would say, hey, that makes sense. Look around. And this picture here is just meant to show you kind of some of the elevational changes that are in Jerusalem. It's not just flat like this. Again, the text that we've looked at. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. God's made that quite clear to us, I believe. That unity is something that that he expects, that that he wants to give us as a blessing. If we look at the last verse there, uh, the last part of it, it says... For there the Lord commanded the blessing. Life forever. Lord, the Lord God wants to bless us with unity. He, this is what he wants for his people. These are the people that, that he is going to welcome into his presence one day. So why would he not want that for us now? Why would we, as the people wanting that for the future, not practice that right here, right now, on earth? See, when the Lord commands a blessing, it happens. It's different than if I beg him for a blessing. That's still up to God. But if God says something's going to happen, you know, consider it done. The big things that I think we should take from from Psalm 133 are that it is important for us to be united. Because literally, we've talked about it, it's good and it's pleasant. Figuratively, being united is, is fragrant. It's fruitful. There's benefits from it. You can see what it results in. 
and spiritually, it is a life-giving blessing from God for eternity. We're not going to be, be alone on the other side. We're going to be with God's people. And, and we have the privilege of being united with God's people right now. This is the view from Mount Zion, or sorry, from uh, Mount Hermon here. And I kind of sometimes think of it as, as like God's view from, from up above, you know, looking across the whole world. And if God says that this is good and pleasant, God sees it all. He knows what's good for us. We've talked a lot about love, that, that that is the background of unity, that to be showing that will help us with unity. And, and to close today, we just want to relook at a, at a verse from Colossians that we've seen there, and it says this. Colossians 3.14 Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity.